I want to share with you a message this morning that I've been, uh, I've been using it in my devotional time uh, probably for about the last three weeks. How many know that God wants you to encounter Him, not just once, but on a regular basis? To encounter means to experience Him, not just to know about Him. That's the intellect. Not to have a message or just to hear words, but to have an experience with God. And experiences are meant to transform us. God is not far off. God has revealed He wants to make Himself accessible to us. And so it's faith that connects us to Him. So when we have an encounter with God, we would expect that it affects our life. So in the last three or four weeks, I've been using one particular passage because I find what God is on or is stirring my heart, and I stick with that. So in the recent, uh, I suppose the last five or six weeks, I guess, the Lord has been talking to me about His love and about loving on Him, about being intentionally expressive in loving Him. And uh, so I want to talk today, I'll share with you, I want to share with you just what I have been learning, and uh, it's going to open your eyes to some, quite some degree as you look into a passage you already know and have probably heard preach before, but you're going to see this through different eyes today. How many want to see through different eyes? So I want to be open and hungry to learn. So uh, even in, no matter how many messages I've heard, no matter how much I've read or studied, I'm hungry for more. And, uh, and the more we feed on the things of God, the more hungry we get. And uh, if you find your hunger is gone, something is spiritually wrong inside. Something is missing. So the prayer and fasting season is to stir hunger and passion for God. We'll talk about that later. So uh, how fresh is your encounter with the Lord? How fresh have you encountered Him? One of the great positives I had out of my experience with uh, having a heart uh, operation was uh, I had to... I had to rest, couldn't do anything for about eight weeks, which is really strange for me, being so busy. But uh, I found that every day, the Lord would come and encounter me. So when I look back over the year at the six to eight weeks or the eight weeks I had where I couldn't go out and do too much and I was tired most of the time, just recovering from a heart operation, I look back with deep gratitude for the experiences with God. And uh, just recently, again, I felt that same wave of visitation coming over me again. And, uh, and one particular passage has stood out to me. I have read it. I've gone through it. I've studied it. I've looked at it. And as time has gone on, I've seen things in it I never, ever saw before. And uh, so I want to share this with you. And uh, when we look into a passage in the Bible, and the passage we're going to look to is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through to verse 50. So I'll read it for you in just a moment. And, uh, but one of the things about this is the Bible was not written to us. It was written to a people, a Hebrew people. And therefore, uh, when, you, when it was written to them, uh, they understood what was happening in the stories. When we read it, we're reading it through Western culture viewpoint. And uh, although it's written for us, the problem is we don't understand when we look at stories what was going on. We don't get the significance of what we read. We just read it, and it's another Bible story, and we read on. So I want to just take time to take this one story and open it for you and show you some things in it that are amazing. Because as I've looked at it, my love for Jesus just deepened so much, and my... Uh, my understanding of how brilliant he was has been increasing exponentially. He is extraordinarily brilliant. He is just so, so sharp. I'm just so amazed. And uh, so the story is found in Luke chapter 7, and the message is on extravagant love. I want to speak on extravagant love or extravagant gratitude. So here it is in verse 36. It said, uh, one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, in which he knew that Jesus was sitting at the table or sat at the table in the Pharisee's house. She bought an alabaster uh, flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke in himself. In other words, he didn't speak aloud. He spoke in his thoughts, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he'd know what manner of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. And just as Jesus shares a parable, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing, and the, when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. So tell me, which of them will love him the more? And Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman. And notice this strange thing that he does. He turns to the woman, but speaks to Simon. And this is what he said. Do you, not, do you not see, or do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But to whom in little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, so he's been speaking to Simon while looking at her, continues to look to her, and then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those at the table began to say to themselves, who's this that even forgives sins? He ignores them all, of course, and he just says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, when you read the story, without some kind of understanding of what was happening, uh, we miss most of what's going on in the story. But there are, four, uh, uh, there are four events in the story which cause or shock the people that are there. Uh, you can imagine if you're in a gathering of people or in a meal, in a celebration meal or something, and then some, someone does something that totally shocks everyone there, there's like a, a silence and there's a tension comes into the air and everyone wonders what's going to happen next. Now, there are four points in the story where Jesus shocks the whole crowd. He shocks the crowd or the, the crowd becomes shocked because of what is happening that was not expected. Notice we start off here. The first shock that takes place is that the Pharisee publicly dishonors Jesus. Now, you notice the Pharisee has invited him for a meal. Now, it's not just an ordinary meal. It's what they call habarim, where they invite a rabbi or invite a person who knows the Bible or is skilled in the, laws, uh, in, in the law. They would invite them to come for a banquet meal, and the purpose of it would be to have the meal and to discuss theological matters. So it's quite a common thing to do that. And uh, so normally the person who was hosting it would be a person who was fairly well off. Uh, in this case, it was a Pharisee, one of the Pharisees. So there were other Pharisees there. So this Pharisee would have invited the important people in the town to come. The Pharisees were a religious people. They were strict and adhering to their own laws and what they thought would please God. And they judged or criticized or rejected anyone who did not socially conform. So they considered themselves superior. And so Je Jesus has been invited to the Pharisee's house. Uh, it looks as though he's been invited as a guest of honor, but they have no intention of honoring him at all. The intention of the invitation is to prove publicly he is not a prophet. To, in other words, publicly shame him and disgrace him. Now, you have to understand that in Asia and the Middle East, to invite someone to a meal is to express honor to them. So we go into Asia all the time, and the meal is a vital part of honoring you. So if someone invites you as their guest, then this is an honor they are bestowing on you, and how you respond is very important. If you turn down the honor, and sometimes I've been tempted to do that. I've been so tired out of ministry. I remember one of the last, uh, me last meetings I had, I'd done uh, something, an enormous number of meetings over the space of eight, nine days, prayed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I was exhausted. And then the, uh, the, the associate pastor said, we want to take you out for a meal. And I said, look, I would just love to be able to stay home right now. I'm just exhausted and tired. And I saw the look in her eye. And immediately I knew 
I had said the wrong thing. I, I then immediately changed. I said, oh, you're wanting to take me out to honor me, aren't you? And she didn't say a word. And I said, if I don't come, you're going to get into big trouble. This would be a big dishonor. She didn't say a word, but I could see it all in the eyes. I said, we would love to come. Thank you for honoring us. So in other words, to the whole issue of a meal and a meal invitation is always surrounded with honor. When you invite someone, you are honoring them. So cultures in the Middle East and, and Asia, it's a very big deal when they ask you for a meal. It is an invitation to be honored as a guest. So when you accept the invitation, your expectation is you will be received and welcomed with honor and with value. And of course, that's what we experience all the time in Asia, and that was the custom in the East. So it was unheard of for the honored guest to be dishonored. So when Jesus came, there were three things that they did not do that caused everyone to be put to shock. It's unheard of that a, uh, a guest of honor would not be honored. Now, at the meeting, the, at, the, uh, at the meal, which was a banquet, they would be uh, seated in terms of their rank or order of importance, but the ordinary people of the city, who were the poor people, could come. They weren't invited, but there was always an open door, and they would come, and they'd sit right around the outside of the table. So the table would be a U table. People would be reclined at the table with their head in towards the center, their feet outwards, and everyone else would, uh, all the crowds of uh, of poor people would come, and when the meal was over, all the excess food was given to them. So for the Pharisee, this is one of the ways of showing he's a man of honor, a man of God, because his door is open to receive the poor. It's all a show. So that's what Jesus came into. Now you notice here, there are three requirements if you hosted a rabbi. Three requirements. Number one requirement was you gave him a kiss of greeting. So if a rabbi, who was a highly honored person, came to the house, then the men of the house would line up, and you never kissed them on the cheek. You would kiss ordinary people who were your equals on the cheek, like that, you know. And they do that someplace. I've been to some places, and they welcome you, give you a hug, and they kiss you on the cheeks, you know. It's a bit different if it's a man kissing you on the But anyway, you kind of just, that's the culture, you know. And uh, just stop at the one kiss, all right. And... Uh, so, but, but, so they kiss my cheek. That's, that's, a, that's to do, you do that to an equal. But to someone who was a rabbi, you would not kiss them on the cheek, kiss them on the hand. So the men of the house would line up, and when the rabbi came in, they'd be all there to meet him, and they would, uh, he would stretch his hand out, and they would kiss his hand, which was a sign of honor. Okay, second thing that was required was a bowl of water to wash the feet. Normally, you washed your own feet. Feet were considered unclean. Feet were considered uh, the uh, defiled part of the body, so no one touched the feet. Don't touch the feet. You know, so you, you were provided water in a bowl so you could wash your feet because after walking around in sandals and in streets lined with cattle and dung and stuff, they were fairly messy, fairly smelly, and you were considered defiled until your feet were washed. So they provided a basin of water. And then thirdly, in the case of a nobleman or a person of honor, they would also provide uh, olive oil and they would anoint them or they'd, they'd rinse, touch their hands with oil uh, and sometimes anoint their hair. So it would be usually a sweet-smelling kind of oil. Now, you notice here, that's the requirements for hospitality. So in the Middle East, you would never insult a guest. Now, you notice what's happened. Jesus has been invited, so he's accepted coming there. And so now he's put in a situation which is extremely difficult. His host has intentionally insulted him in front of everyone. Now, that's the thing about the story that you've got to catch. Everyone is shocked. And you can imagine the tension in the atmosphere because they all know he has insulted the guest he invited. They all know, everyone there. There are lots of people there, and they all know Jesus has been intentionally, publicly insulted. So what are his options? What could he do? He's deliberately not only insulted, but put in an impossible situation. Here's what's impossible. What he could do was say, I can see I'm not welcome, and walk out, and the Pharisee would be able to say, well, we hosted a meal for Jesus, and he walked out on us. Secondly, he could not walk out and remain there, but the problem was the unwashed feet. 
if he sat at the table and touched the table with unwashed feet, it was considered he defiled the table and defiled everyone there. So he's at, if he sits down at the table, he can't touch it because if he touches it, he defiles everyone there. Then they can say, well, what's he, never, he came, he never even washed his feet and, uh, and, and look at this, he's, uh, he defiled the whole table. He's got no sense of what's right. You understand? So, so he's forced to either touch the table and defile everyone or not touch the table and not eat anything. The guest of honor at the table, everyone else is eating and he's again insulted and humiliated publicly. Now, when, the more you read of the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus went in and out of situations all the time where they were hostile to him and wanted to attack him and ridicule him publicly and shame him. And this is one of those situations. So the first shock to the assembled crowd is that they, the, the host has publicly shamed him and they're now waiting to see what Jesus will do. And this is what Jesus does. The normal thing would be for the person to reject the, uh, the hostility and to walk out. Jesus does not do that. Jesus takes it all into himself and remains. And the reason he remains is because his mission was to seek and save the lost. He wanted to not only reach the lawbreakers, he ought to want to keep, reach the law keepers as well. He came for them as well. He shared the parable later on about the man who had two sons, one with the lawbreakers and one with the law keepers. He came to reach them all. So it does raise some questions as you look at how Jesus responded. How do we respond if people reject us or are hostile to our faith in Christ? Do we still reach out to engage them or do we withdraw? How do we respond when people open their world for us to come in? Will we come into that world, or do we just stay in our own safe world? He could have just stayed in a safe world, but Jesus came to save people. And to save people, you've got to engage with them, and it's not always easy. Amen? Okay, so the whole atmosphere is full of tension, and Jesus has been insulted publicly, and he's in a very, very difficult situation. So now, the second shock is this one. Now, notice how vulnerable he is. He's accepted the invitation, come in, and now been publicly humiliated. So what does he do? Now, this is the thing I love about him. He never let anyone else define his worth. See, a lot of people define their worth by what others say or do about them. You know what Jesus did? Now, here's the custom. In, in a place like that, uh, usually the person who sat down first was the eldest. So the eldest sat down, then in order of rank after that. So what does Jesus do? He accepts the insult, just goes and sits down on the top seat. In other words, I am the most important person here, and regardless of your insult, I will not be put down nor change how I see. That's a challenging thing to do, isn't it? Regardless how people treat you, he didn't change in his thinking about himself. I know who I am. I'm the son of God. I've come now to bring healing. I've come to bring deliverance. I've come to bring a message of hope and life. And how you treat me is not going to change who I am and what I've come to do. How often it is that we get affected by the way people react to us, treat us, or whatever, and we forget who we are and what we're called to do. We're called to be sons and daughters of the living God. And if people treat us bad, it's because they don't know how valuable we are. I don't know who we are. But you need to know who you are and carry yourself as a person of honor. Jesus did not worry about their insult. He absorbed it and carried on as the man he was, a man of honor, the son of God. Okay, now the second thing. Now, this is the part he could never have predicted. The Pharisee thinks he's got Jesus trapped because he's got him now. He's publicly insulted him. He's left all these things out. And now Jesus at the table. He's going to sit at the table. They're not going to eat while everyone else is eating. Yeah, that's really weird. You know, so it's like he's keeping the pressure on him because he not really got him there because he cares about him. He just wants to prove he's a fraud. He wants to prove he's not a prophet. Now, this is the bit that God is about. See, when, when you intentionally reach out to people, even if they're hostile and resist the gospel, you will find that God will come in some way to give the door. So the, the, the Pharisee thinks he's got Jesus trapped. And then shock number two. 
Now imagine everyone knows Jesus, everyone knows the Pharisees, they're all coming, the, the place is crowded with everyone waiting to see what's going to happen. And now it's like a first class drama. <gasps> they've, they've insulted the guest. What's he going to do? You know, when we get insulted, we want to call fire down from heaven. Remember what the disciples did when Jesus got rejected and they wouldn't have him into the city? He said, well, shall we call fire down like Elijah did and burn them up? He said, well, you don't know what spirit you are. I'm coming to burn people up. I've come to save them. Said you're, but many of us are of another spirit. If people reject us, well, fire to come down and burn them. Judge them. But that's not the spirit of Jesus, eh? Okay, then. so the second thing. Now, the second thing is a bit that's really, this is another shocker, and it's a shocker for several reasons. Here's what it is. So this is what happens now. The woman, there's a woman in the city who was a sinner. I love the way it tells who the people are. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. So we know who the next person is. She's a woman, she's a sinner, and she's in the city. Now, people assume she was a prostitute, but there's nothing that says she was a prostitute. But she was well known to Simon. Simon knew exactly who she was and knew she was a sinner. Probably she was a sinner or considered a sinner because of the work she was involved in, the business she was involved in. She was obviously reasonably wealthy, but she would be involved in trade in the city, involved in commerce of some kind. And uh, whatever it was, they considered her a sinner and rejected her. But because part of the deal is you allow people to come in, the sinners are all on the outside and around the edge. So... Anyway, this is Simon trying to show he's so good. But, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, what happens is she came, and I think she came to express her gratitude. It's very clear when you read the story, she has had an encounter with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus is meant to change us. The woman knew that she was a sinner. But when she encountered Jesus, Jesus, this is what it says, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He welcomed them and ate with them because his life's ministry was to engage them and bring a message of love and acceptance and hope. And that woman, when she encountered Jesus, the, we'll see later on the story, she believed what he had to say. And as a result in, of her encounter, it walked away forgiven with a transformed life. So this woman who's had a life transformed by her encounter with Jesus now wants to express her gratitude. So she comes with a little bottle of oil. She thinks, I'll look for the chance when I can anoint him with a bit of oil. When she comes, she finds it's not like she expected. So she comes and positions herself around the outside wall. Jesus has come and, and uh, laid down, got sat down at the table and his feet out so she's positioned herself outside and now this is what she does she suddenly realizes he has been publicly insulted and she looks around thinking does no one care that this one I love who has changed my life is treated like this publicly her heart has been so impacted She's recognized who Jesus is. She knows the glory of God is in him. And this one who is carrying the glory of God walks into the place of the, a religious center for the church, into the home, very home of one of the religious leaders, and is insulted, and her heart breaks. She cannot stop weeping and weeping. Now, the word weeping there is the word cry out loudly. It's not a quiet, like, you know, someone's getting worship. This is, this is letting it all out. She, she was heartbroken that Jesus, the Messiah, was treated in such a horrendously insulting way among the people he came, which were his own people. She just broke and wept and wept and wept. Now, she didn't come intending to wash his feet. She did not come intending to wipe his feet. She came with oil only. Maybe she intended to anoint him, but she certainly intended to tend, so she didn't have a towel, didn't have anything. But as she stood there, now, she must have been, the Bible says, sobbing aloud. Now, that's the same expression used when it said, after Peter uh, looked on the face of Jesus after he betrayed him, went out and he wept, sobbed aloud. It's the same language that's used when it expresses Jesus looked over Jerusalem for seeing its future and he sobbed aloud. This is deep emotional grief 
that someone you love has been treated so badly. And so she just breaks down and weeps that. So suddenly, now, this is supposed to be a, a little intellectual gathering to talk the word of God. And now there's this woman. Everyone knows she's a sinner. And she's, yeah! She's going for it. Now, now, so everyone is shocked. And as they watch, so all the attention's on the woman now. And now what she does now is even more shocking. It's turning from drama to drama. So what does she do? Well, she, now she's weeping loud and she realizes straight away, she knows what she can do. She knows, she sees the water coming out, the tears coming, and she realizes, I just wash his feet with those. So she knelt down, she's cried over his feet. Now, so when, when, by, the only way she could wash his feet was to kneel down. So she knelt down at his feet and now she's sobbing. She's just sobbing. I wonder how you respond when you see people expressing their passion, their love, strongly. You know, often men despise women who get emotional. It's often the thinking that people have. Oh, a woman's emotional. But actually, she was the only one who showed her concern that Jesus was insulted, dishonored. And so she knelt at his feet and she just wept and wept and wept and wept and the tears came down over his feet. So water's on his feet and it said she wiped his feet. Now you understand that she is humbling herself to do something no servant would do, only the Gentile servant would do. People wash their own feet. She is humbling herself to wash her feet as an act of passionate love for him. She's got no way to, uh, and, and in doing so, she is touching him. Now, she's now breaking another unspoken rule. You know when there's, a spoke, there's unspoken rules? If someone breaks an unspoken rule, <laughs> the air goes electric. Everyone knows, <gasps> you touched that item. You know, some people's place you go to, you can't touch things. You touch it or move it. <gasps> the air freezes, sucked out. Something has happened. So she touches him. No woman is allowed to touch a rabbi. She is totally and this is a sinner. Now everyone's watching in shock. She's not only crying over his feet and making a loud noise, interrupting everything, she's now touching his feet. She's wiping them with her hands. Now the, the Pharisees thinking, whoa. Boy, this guy's no prophet. Man, didn't even know who this woman is. And she's, woman is a sinner, touching him. And the word touch in the Bible there is the word uh, to set on fire. In other words, from the Pharisee's point of view, this is a very sexual thing she's doing. It says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, it says a man should not touch a woman. That's the same word. In other words, she looked at, this woman's touching a man and touching a rabbi. This is unheard of. So everyone is, well, what is Jesus going to do? What is going to happen next? You ever been in a situation where you wonder, what's going to happen next? Sometimes you get in the movie and it gets going and you, whoa, what's going to happen next? Oh, the tension is so, well, so you imagine being in the room and the room's full of tension. What's going to happen next? And then she doesn't do that, she does something else. She lets down her hair because she's got no towel, not going to ask the Pharisee for a towel because he already hasn't given it, and now she dries her, his feet with her hair. <gasps> you see, because we're in a Western culture, we don't get what was going on. Now, in the culture of the Middle East, a woman never let her hair down. Her hair was always done up and it was always covered. And uh, so the only time a man saw the woman let her hair down was on the wedding night. On the wedding night for the first time in the bridal chamber, he would see her let her hair down. So if a woman... The, and, and a woman to let her hair down in public was a source of immense shame. She considered nothing but a harlot. And so now this woman, oh, when will the horrors cease? In the, in, the, in the custom of that time, to let a woman to let her hair down in public was as bad as exposing a breast. That was how... Shameful, it was considered. <gasps> and not only that, she took a risk doing that because 
if she was a married woman, if she was a married woman, if she did, went even outside with her hair down, it was grounds in the Mishnah, that's the, the, the oral Torah, that was uh, the oral law, that was grounds for a divorce. <gasps> My wife went out with her hair down, that's grounds for divorce. And not only divorce, divorce with no payout either. In other words, she's serious because, I mean, she's left financially no support whatsoever. She has taken an immense risk publicly. She has identified that Jesus is rejected and everyone else seems to think and do nothing. She is going to identify with him. When she lets her hair down, it's like she is letting him know of her love and bridal commitment to him. Then she takes the oil and wipes the oil. Now, interesting, the thing with the oil. Normally, they used olive oil, but if you read here, it said she had an alabaster box of ointment. I looked up the word, and I was quite surprised to find what I saw. What I found was this. The word ointment, there's the word which comes from a root word meaning myrrh. So it's not just ordinary olive oil. She was using myrrh, which is a particularly fragrant uh, substance. It's uh, that they made, and, and myrrh was obtained out of a special plant. They would cut the side of the, of the plant, and, and drops of the gum would come out, and they'd gather the drops of gum. So myrrh was called, uh, literally, it's another, a nickname was tears from a tree, tears from a tree. And myrrh was used in the holy anointing oil, was the prime one of the prime ingredients. Myrrh was used to perfume the bride for the chamber. So Esther was prepared for six months with myrrh. So myrrh was used also for embalming, to keep the smell of the corrupt body away. It was a very strong perfume. And so we see here that what she broke open was an alabaster box of myrrh. And it's incredibly symbolic. Interesting here, you read a couple of scriptures in Psalm 45 verse 8. Uh, speaking of Jesus, all your garments shall smell of myrrh. In Song of Solomon 1 verse 3 it says, a bundle of myrrh is my beloved. Now, so what is the meaning of the fact that she, she, she poured the myrrh on him? Myrrh in the Bible, the root meaning of the word means to be bitter. And so myrrh is a prophetic picture of love that is willing to suffer on behalf of others. She anoints him with myrrh. The whole room fills with the smell of the myrrh. She is written now. You understand, she must recognize that this is the Son of God who will suffer and give his life for everyone. Now, one of the things that's about Jesus is this. He was willing to endure rejection on our behalf, but I wonder how willing we are to identify with him in the time in history when he's rejected mostly and to be willing to associate with him and worship him and be unashamed to identify with him. Quite very challenging, isn't it? Myrrh. But the whole room filled with the smell of myrrh. She risks, because of what she did, being publicly put out of the meal. Totally shamed and disgraced. In other words, she puts her whole reputation on the line. That causes us to think about a few things. One, number one is, how expressive are you, or how expressive are we, in, 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 in expressing our gratitude to the Lord for what he's done? See, some people think, oh, you're too noisy, you have too much music. Listen, how can you get too expressive for what God has done for us? How can we be too expressive? One of the problems in our culture is, to, is that people are very passive and very unexpressive. And they think that's love. No, love has to be expressed. So how willing are we to be expressive and passionate and unashamed in loving Jesus and expressing gratitude to Him? How expressive! Yeah. Or do we just hold back and just... Listen, that's bondage. That's not, that's not an evidence of deep gratitude. That's not an evidence of a passionate life change. She was expressive and didn't care what anyone thought. She was letting him know that she loved him. Now, you understand there's no self-agenda in this. She's not trying to prove she's anything. She just wants to express love 
passionately and without reserve to him because she is grateful to him. How grateful are we and how do we express that gratitude? How willing are we to identify with him and endure some rejection? Or do we want to go with the crowd? Challenging, isn't it, eh? Challenging. And the thing is, everyone is waiting to see how Jesus will respond. Because what she's done has shocked the room. They are all in horror now. Everyone is shocked. So now, what will Jesus do? Will he say, oh, listen, no, 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 no. Well, you know, I never expected anything like this, you know, but, and, and dismiss it. What will he do? Will he dismiss the woman who's expressed extravagant love or not? How will he treat her? He's in a pub. Notice now, he's really in a spot. So, you want to see the next shock that comes. <laughs> the next shock that comes is he chooses to identify with the woman and affirm her and publicly criticize the host. So here's shock number three. Jesus publicly criticizes the host. Now, in a Middle Eastern and Asian culture, if someone goes out of, they goes out of their way to show hospitality or to invite you to a meal, you, that rule number one, never criticize. Never find anything wrong, even if there is something wrong. You never point it out. It's just not done. So Jesus now does something, and this is what I love about him. He didn't follow all the protocols. He basically, this is what he did, he shocked the crowd by publicly criticizing the host for two things. Number one, his lack of hospitality and honor. In other words, Jesus didn't let it go. He didn't let it go. And secondly, he criticized him or pointed out his lack of gratitude. So basically, he, he confronts the Pharisee publicly in a way that no one would have expected. And he does it. He's just so amazing how he does it. He is amazing how he does it. Now, the Pharisee is looking on, and the Pharisee, notice this, when the Pharisee looked on, he's saying to himself, in other words, he's not saying out loud, no one's hearing him, he's just saying in his heart, what kind of man, this man can't be a prophet. If he was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman is touching him. Now, you notice his pride, his critical spirit, his judgmental attitude He's critical of Jesus dismissing him from being a prophet because how, how come a prophet? A prophet would never let a woman like that touch him. So you notice his thinking about a prophet is so holy they reject all the sinners. A lot of Christians think that way too, by the way. A lot of people do. See? And uh, so, but Jesus is now about to redefine actually what a real prophet does is they come to share the heart of God and restore sinners. So Jesus now turns on him. So he does it in a very clever way. He asks a question. Now, everyone could tell what was about to come because he says this, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Now, in, in, the, in the Middle East, that's a, another way of saying, i got some tough words to say to you. So everyone understood when he said, Simon, I've got something to say to you, that this is now a confrontation about to take place. You can imagine just sitting watching all of this. This is like first-class drama. Man, no one wanted to miss out on a meeting like this. This is just something else. And uh, so, uh, so this is what happened. And uh, he said, I've got something to say to you. And so no, then he tells them the parable. The certain creditor had two debtors. So he uses a story to draw the guy in, get him into agreement. There's a certain debtor, a creditor had two debtors. He had one owed 500 denarii and another 50. Now, one denarii is one day's pay. So you figure out what one day's pay is. I don't know if you get even you got 10 bucks an hour for eight hours, it's 80 bucks, about $100 maybe. So you notice that one person owes 50 times that, the other person owes uh, 100 denarii, so that's a huge amount. So he's saying there's two people and one owed a lot. And notice as he said, neither could pay. Now he's using the area of a debt. The creditor in this case he's talking about really is God. And, what, and the person, the one who owed 50 is Simon, and the one who owed 500 is the woman. So what he's really saying is, uh, he's saying that both you and the woman have got failures in your life, and you are indebted to God, but you can't put it right. It's only God's goodness is going to sort that out. 
So he said, and, and if, the debt, if the creditor forgave both of them and released them from the debt, who would love the most? He said, oh, well, of course, the woman would. He said, well, you've spoken rightly. Now, I, I've seen this story. I've read it a lot of times. And, and till this last, uh, I was in the church about last Sunday. And I suddenly felt to look up a word. And notice he said that the creditor forgave the debt. Forgave the debt. Now, many times when we, when we read it, we're just reading the English translation, so you don't always catch the fullness of what Jesus was saying. You just miss it because the words aren't the same. They don't always translate well, and the word forgive is used several times in that passage. And uh, here's the thing is that when Jesus uses the word creditor forgave, he uses a specific term to increase the pressure on Simon. Everywhere else, he uses another term. So in this term, he said, if the creditor and the creditor forgave them, and the word is charizomai, the word to grace them, or to bless them, or do them a favor. Everywhere else in the Bible, the word to forgive is another word, aphiemi, meaning to release or to let go of debt. But Jesus is careful in his choice of words. And there's a reason he's careful, because of their understanding of what that word meant. He is about to push this guy right on the corner. This is the bit that's so incredible. He could have just used the word forgiven, but no, 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 no. He used the word, the man graced them both. Now, in the cult, if we hear the word grace, the only time you ever hear the word grace at church, or someone sings amazing grace, you hear the word grace. So, and we say, in the church, what does grace mean? Oh, well, uh, grace is the favor of God, the un 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 undeserved favor of God. And we've got it pretty well right, but actually it's a very limited understanding of it. It's a Western culture understanding. In the culture of their day, grace was a word used everywhere. This is what it meant. That's why by using the word, he's heightening the pressure on this guy. He's really giving him a toweling of his life publicly, which you don't get unless you understand the word there. So in the culture there, there were very rich people, very poor people. And the very poor people would need help. They needed a favor. So if you're a very poor person, you've got someone in your family gets sick, you can't pay the bill, you go to someone who's very rich and ask for a favor. Uh, if you wanted to start up to start your business, you went to someone wealthy and got a loan from them, a favor to get it going. If you uh, needed a connection to get a business going or needed a connection to get something happening, you go to a person who was well-connected and get a favor. So the very, very, very wealthy people, very, very poor people. Now, they had no public benefit system in those days. So the way the society worked was the very wealthy people the, were expected to be men of honor and help the poor people. The very poor people were expected to respond. So the deal would be this. If a wealthy person, if, if I'm a very wealthy person and I give a gift to Peter, then my act of giving is called grace. I've done him a favor. The gift I give him is also the same word, grace. Now, when a rich person gave a poor person or did them a favor, it was an invitation to a relationship. We just take favors and think nothing of it. But in that culture, it was an invitation to a relationship, a particular kind of relationship where the person were your benefactor and the other one is the recipient of that. They would call them a friend. So the, the, the rich man, to be an honorable man, would be generous and give grace. The poor man would accept the welcome to in, uh, the invitation to a relationship and would connect with him and he would his response was also called grace. So by using the word grace, Jesus has really nailed this guy in a very big way. Because if the creditor releases two debtors, each of them are expected to be responsive. That was the way it went. You were expected to be grateful. You were expected to be loyal. You were expected to honor the one who had helped you. You were expected to help out if he ever called on you for a favor. Now, you see the woman. What has the woman done? She has received grace and is deeply touched by his love. She feels indebted to him. And so her act is an act of grace 
to show her gratitude for what he's done, to show her loyalty to him, even at the risk of being rejected, and to honor him when everyone else dishonored him. So when Jesus used the word grace, he is, everyone knows that in a culture like theirs, that if grace is given, it's expected you'll respond. So he's using this to lean on the guy, and now he applies it. He said, Simon. Now notice he's not looking at Simon, he's looking at the woman. Do you see this woman? You see, Simon has got a critical spirit, critical of the woman, critical of her condition, critical of her behavior, critical of her lifestyle. And, and Jesus said, Simon, you see this woman? He said, now, and he just looks at the woman, and he said, now, I know that you reject her. I know you're critical of her. You just look at her as a sinner. You can't see properly. You don't see what I see. He said this, this is what I saw. When I came in, you gave me no kiss, but she's not stopped kissing me from the beginning. When I came in, you gave me no water, but she has washed my feet with the tears. When I came in, you gave me no oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. They were not forgiven because of what she did. Rather, what she did was because she was forgiven through her previous encounter. Her encounter led her to become grateful and passionate in expressing it. And then he turned to the woman, or he's turned to the woman, then he spoke to the woman. He said, now here's the last shock. He publicly identifies with the woman and affirms her affirms her faith. This is what really shocks them. Here is the religious rabbi in a meeting with the religious leaders of the city, and instead of identifying with them, he publicly rebukes them all and then identifies with the woman and honors her. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Everyone was shocked. They were shocked that Jesus would do this. They were shocked at the way he treated the woman because in that culture, woman had low value. It raises a lot of questions in today's culture of how we look at women, how we look at women being expressive, how we look at women in terms of their standing before God. On that day, the religious man walked out dishonored. The woman who was just passionate who'd been forgiven and accepted her forgiveness, walked out honored in front of the community. Jesus had not only forgiven her, but now used this opportunity to raise her honor and standing in the community again. This is what Jesus is like. He's so loving. So loving. He's so different to what we think. We have to let our ideas go begin to understand how passionate he was at reaching out to the broken and forgiving them and restoring them. And how passionate he was at confronting religious systems that rejected women, that rejected people, that held people away from God. He came to make God accessible for us. And if we've had an encounter with God, there should be an expression of it. Deep, deep gratitude. I have been so touched by this story. How much Jesus loves people. While he's rebuking the Pharisee, he's looking straight at her. He's affirming she's of value. Now, to look at the woman, he had to look away from the whole table to a woman at his feet weeping and then honored her publicly. How willing are we to express our gratitude? How willing are we to accept people that Jesus has forgiven? How willing are we to open our heart and be passionate and loyal in serving Him. And just close your eyes for a moment right now.
Lord, we just thank you. I feel your presence here. I feel your wonderful love. Friend, we need a fresh encounter with Jesus. We need to experience him. I'm going to give an opportunity in a moment for people to come. I'd like us to go back into that song, I Need an Encounter, because we do. I believe there'll be people here who are living, and you're living condemned. You are living criticized. You've had people criticize you for who you are and what you've done and how you've lived your life. But I want to encourage you to believe you're forgiven and to throw off that accusation. God wants to set you free of accusing spirits, judgmental spirits. Some of you have been in churches and you've been judged and criticized and faults found of you. God wants you to be free to be delivered of that. He loves you and welcomes you. Others here today, and we've been touched by God. Now we need a fresh touch. Perhaps you've lacked gratitude. Perhaps you've lacked expression and worship. Perhaps your prayer life has got dull and, and just there's no life in it anymore. It's time to remember what he has done and to fall in love with him again and fall at his feet and weep and just worship him. So whether you need to be set free of criticism, set free of rejection, set free of being judged by people, set free of being just isolated and sidelined in some way by someone, if you're needing a fresh encounter, fresh touch, why don't you come? Let's just stand at the front or kneel or whatever and just begin to worship Jesus and choose to believe. I'm forgiven and I'm going to express my gratitude. Would you come? For some of us, it's a time of fresh encounter. For some of us, it's a time of fresh touch of God. But don't just come just to stand there passively. Come and choose to open your heart to the one who loves you.